Good morning. Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Nick Morrow. I represent Christine Powell. The district court committed reversible error when it dismissed Ms. Powell's petition for count one and counts two, both causes of action arising under our ERISA law. This case is a little bit unique in that a typical ERISA case would involve a claimant making a claim for benefits, the insurer interpreting the policy, making a denial determination, and then the claimant challenging that. In this case, the insurer on its own initiative interpreted its policy and made a determination that it could and in fact did extend Scott Powell's conversion rights and continued his coverage retroactive to his termination with John Deere. Mr. Powell was an employee for John Deere for many years. He took advantage of an early retirement program and then died shortly thereafter of COVID-related complications during which he had a conversion right to convert his group policy issued by Minnesota Life into an individual life policy. And as noted, we are at the motion to dismiss stage and the district court incorrectly concluded that the only way for Ms. Powell to prevail under count one was to assert that the February 24th letter issued by Minnesota Life altered the terms of the plan by extending the 31-day window. And I would note that we're not asking anybody to alter the terms of the plan. The insurance policy is completely silent on the insurer's ability to extend the conversion deadline and to continue coverage. Now wait, you said entirely silent? It says no change in this policy of validness made in writing? So tell me how it's silent. It's silent on whether the insurer may continue the conversion deadline or extend coverage retroactive to the termination. But it's not silent as to the existence of a deadline. It's not silent to the existence of a deadline. So if it establishes a deadline and your argument is they extended it, why isn't that an alteration of the policy? In this particular insurance policy, it does say that the insurer should apply for conversion within 31 days. There are other policies and the case is actually relied upon by Minnesota Life where there is much harsher language where the use of the word must, they must apply, the premiums must be received, in no event will extension be granted beyond 91 days. That type of language isn't in this particular plan. And all we have are the policy. And all we have right now is the policy. We don't have the actual totality of the plan. I do believe that there was a separate plan created for the voluntary early retirement program, which we have not been able to get into. And at some point, based on this letter, it's clear that Deere delegated to Minnesota Life the obligation to send conversion notices. And Minnesota Life acknowledges this when it sends a letter that says we've conducted an audit. Well, what is the audit? Why is there an audit? And we've determined that you did not get your conversion notice. And that is, as we've alleged, because John Deere delegated that responsibility and asked Minnesota Life to do that. And it's inconceivable at this point, we believe, that if Mr. Powell was alive and sent his premium checks in, that they wouldn't have cashed him and said, okay, great, here's your insurance. Because they've made a decision to both extend the conversion deadline and continue and extend coverage retroactive to his termination. So they are soliciting 
back premium payments, which, which is an acknowledgement from them. If they're paid, then Mr. Powell is covered all the way through the February 24th letter, letter, which would include the time of his death. And so... But he dies before he gets the letter, right? Correct. Or anybody gets he can't get the letter. He, he dies before the letter can be gotten by anybody, right? Yes, that's correct. I believe he died. Isn't that an overwhelming uh, 19 days, right, after? Yeah. About that, yes. About that. So isn't that an overwhelming fact, an overwhelming hurdle for you that justifies a motion to dismiss? Well, only if the letter, only if the letter was improper. Whether Mr. Powell is alive or not doesn't, doesn't change whether Mr. Light had an obligation to send this letter and make the decision that it did based on whatever communications it had with John Deere, whatever the voluntary separation plan said, which we don't know. We don't have those yet because the case was dismissed at the, at the dismissal stage. And so uh, if, the, if the letter was, if Minnesota Life should have written the letter, if it was a proper letter, then whether Mr. Powell was alive or not is irrelevant. Uh, their, their decision that he should have gotten notice and that payment of premiums back to his uh, termination date would continue coverage means he would have been covered on the date of his death uh, had uh, had all it, all it took was the premiums to be paid, and again, this is all Minnesota Life's own interpretation of its policy. This is Minnesota Life conducting an audit, Minnesota Life reviewing its its terms, and Minnesota Life concluding that it can and in fact should do what it did. And that that is what is somewhat unique of this case, is because generally speaking, the insurer gets up and says, "Hey, we get a lot of deference and discretion." Uh, to interpret our policy, and this is how we've interpreted it. We agree. This is how you interpreted it, and you, then you, you went back on it when you realized, oh no, Mr. Powell died, and now we have to pay his benefits. And so there are other issues that that raises, uh, Your Honors. It's why did Minnesota Life send conversion letters to other employees who retired under this same program Mr. Powell did? Did they send letters to other employees like Mr. Powell, who for whatever reason didn't get there? Does your complaint make an allegation about that? Yes. What does it say? Uh, it's, it, it alleges specifically that Minnesota Life uh, gave conversion notices to other employees who retired at the same time as Mr. Powell, um, and that Mr. Powell did not get his. Why did they send, oh, okay. why did they send those notices to other employees? Did they send other notices to employees like Mr. Powell who didn't get theirs? And have they accepted back premiums as, as we sit here? Have they accepted back premiums from other employees who fortunately did not pass away, who decided, you know what, I do want to take advantage of this. I do want insurance about going through. So you're talking about a notice back in September? Yes. Yeah, I thought you were talking about a letter like they sent in March. Or February 24th, sorry. February 24th. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. We don't, we don't know if they... But you don't make any allegation about it? About other people got this letter? Uh, I think we argued that in our... In our, in our no, yeah, our, but it's not in your complaint. No, it's not in our complaint. Proceed. Um, thank you. I misunderstood. Yep, sorry, Your Honor. I, I no, didn't, no, no. I just misunderstood which one you're talking about. <laughs> These are risky cases, I tell you. Uh, <clears throat> so what is it that imposed a duty on Minnesota Life to send the conversion notice? I think that's a question that remains to be answered. Uh, is it a communication from John Deere? Does the, plan, does the plan administrator delegate and direct the claims administrator to do that? 
Um, I believe that's something that needs to be answered. Uh, if they did, then it's certainly a breach of fiduciary duty, even as a claims administrator, to not send it. And, and I wouldn't note again, at this point, all we have is the policy. We don't have the plan which describes who is the actual plan administrator. It might end up being Minnesota Life. We just don't know because all we have is the policy. But we do know they conducted an audit for some reason. They determined in their audit that they needed to provide these notices and Mr. Powell didn't get his, so they sent him one. They solicited back premium payments, meaning they wanted payments for September, October, November, December, January, February, which means that he was covered during that entire time if he pays the premiums, including the time of his death. And so it's not altering the plan, it's an interpretation of Minnesota Life's plan that they can do that. And it's, it's odd, there's an odd scenario where an insurer makes an interpretation that favors the insured that is subsequently rejected uh, by, by the court. And so uh, that that's, it really is an interesting and unique case in that regard. Um, the district court also concluded that the only way in which plaintiff could prevail would be if the letter created a new window during which Mr. Powell could apply for conversion, meaning, okay, even if there is a new window, it starts February 24th. I believe that's what the district court said. But, but even that ignores the letter because the letter talks about continuing coverage, retroactive determination date, as long as premiums are paid back. So whether he's covered under the existing policy because he paid premiums or a new conversion window, either way, according to Minnesota Life, He's covered. And so, again, there are, there are a lot of questions that, that I think remain unanswered. And going back to, did Minnesota like send letters like this to other people? Now, Your Honor, you asked if we pled that. I, I can't plead that because I don't know. Uh, but if they did, that's an indication that they're interpreting this policy consistent with their letter, not their position here in court today. If they've accepted premium payments, are they accepting those for policies that don't exist? Are there Minnesota Life insurers walking around right now who've paid back premiums, who are paying premiums only to some to learn eventually that, you know what, that was a mistake, you shouldn't have done it, here's your premiums back? Those are relevant questions here because it, it, it all goes back to how Minnesota Life is consistently interpreting this policy and what they should be held to based on the letter. Uh, your Honor, I would briefly just also touch on count two, which is the claim for equitable relief. Um, I do believe the district court um, did ignore um, this court's prior ruling in Silva, uh, which held that a plaintiff can assert at this stage alternate theories of recovery, both under um, the direct claim and the equitable claim. And Silva also recognized that under the make whole doctrine that an insured can recover benefits under certain circumstances under this equitable claim. And so to the extent that the court dismissed count two for those reasons, uh, that should be reversed as well. With respect to the substance of that, we have alleged that Minnesota Life had a fiduciary duty. We've alleged that Deere delegated duties to communicate to its insurers regarding the conversion rights, those insurers participating in early retirement. Um, and taking all the facts in favor of the plaintiff, um, 
how can we dismiss this case <clears throat> without learning what those communications between Deere and Minnesota Life were? How can we dismiss this case without knowing what the audit was and why it was initiated and without knowing why Minnesota Life didn't send a letter to Scott Powell right away, subsequently did, and whether it sent it to other folks. And so we do believe that there's equitable relief that's available to Mrs. Powell as an alternative theory that Minnesota Life breached its fiduciary duty, we have to plug that, and that as a result of that breach, uh, she has been denied benefits and should be entitled to them. I'm going to reserve the rest of my right, uh, rest of my time for rebuttal unless the board has any other questions for me at this time. Very Thank well. you. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. May it please the court, counsel, Molly Hamilton-Cawley on behalf of Defendants Minnesota Life Insurance Company and Securian Life Insurance Company. Um, I think it's important to recognize that while ERISA is a very comprehensive statute, it's, it does not encompass or resolve every uh, perceived scenario or alleged wrong. And uh, my distinguished uh, counsel raises uh, a lot of facts that he thinks are relevant, but based on what was pleaded in the complaint and 502A1B and 502A3 as written in ERISA, there, is no, there are no plausible claims in this case. I'll start with 502A1B. Um, those types of claims to be viable, you have to allege facts showing that the plaintiff was denied benefits due under the terms of the plan or to enforce rights under the terms of the plan. Well, counsel, let me interrupt you. Certainly. You use the term plan. The other side says, all we got is a policy. Do we have a plan? Do we have a policy? I notice the district court goes back and forth on whether it is an insurance policy, and then later they call it a plan, and I think they're talking about the policy. So help Sir, me. Do we have a plan in this case? Yes, the policy is the plan. Okay, um, what says that? Twenty-nine USC one one zero two. No, it doesn't say policy is a plan. It just mentions a plan, doesn't it? No, it says. In tell order, us. Please, <laughs> yeah. tell, come on. In order to be a plan, you have to have a written instrument requirement. That's a policy, and it must have procedures for amending the plan, uh, identifying the beneficiaries, the source of financing, and the procedures for administering the benefits. That's a policy. Um, so it, it, the policy in this case, which the complaint admits is the governing instrument, by the way, um, meets all the requirements of a 29 U.S.C. 1102 plan. <clears throat> so the, the confusion is there isn't some other plan that's missing from the record. The policy is the governing plan instrument. The complaint admits that that is in fact true, and in fact that the policy unambiguously describes the conversion right which is that an insured converts his or her insurance by applying for an individual policy and paying the first premium within 31 days after group coverage terminates. The complaint concedes that coverage terminated August 31st, 2020. Uh, the complaint concedes that the, uh, Mr. Powell did not do anything to convert his coverage in the five months uh, thereafter prior to his unfortunate death. So under the terms of the plan, He's not entitled to benefits. So well, how can, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> how can you say that, that this is unambigu unambiguous when the uh, insurance company itself, in a writing, uh, states that 
weeks and weeks after the termination of this person's employment, there's still a right to convert the, the life coverage. Does the company not understand what its own plan says? No, I think those are, I think that's a great question. I think there's, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about what the plan says, and then we're talking about a summary document that, for a certain group of employees, allowed for a new conversion period. I don't, there's nothing in that letter that's interpretive, and there's also nothing in that letter that would let it constitute a plan document. So again, Technically, under I mean, under a 502A1B claim, that letter cannot be considered a plan document. This is Cigna v. Amara. There are communications that go out that describe plan terms, but they cannot, in and of themselves, constitute plan terms for purposes of a 502A1B claim. That's in Cigna v. Amara. So this letter cannot somehow give plaintiff a right to 50218B. But why can't the letter explain what the plan said and means? It, it, it can, but for purposes of 502A1B, it is not a, it's not a term of the plan because it's not a plan document. It, I know that the world of ERISA is a little confusing, but that is, in order for a 502A1B, be claimed to be plausible. You have to be looking at a plan document and you have to be enforcing its terms. Well, let me ask it differently. Can you explain, is there anything in the record that explains why this February 24th letter was sent? Other than the contents of the letter that say that there was an audit and that they were sending gratuitous, gratuitously or as a courtesy, sending conversion packets and, and a certain group of employees didn't receive them. Um, but that's all the context I have are the, the denial letter and the February 24th letter. But, you're, but as I'm understanding your position, it is that the letter is inconsistent with the terms of the plan slash policy. To the extent that, you would, that they would be inconsistent, that still doesn't get you a 502A1B. Uh, that's not my question. Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. Is the letter inconsistent with the terms of the plan slash policy? Only to, I, I guess, to the extent it is gratuitously extending a conversion period for certain people, I, I guess, I don't know if I'd say inconsistent, I would just say it's a um, providing an opportunity that otherwise wouldn't be Well, counsel, it's gratuitously, your term, contrary to the 31-day deadline. It is. To the extent it is extending the 31-day yeah. deadline, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, has to. Um, I think so. They have, they may have a remedy with an insurance commissioner, right, for fraudulent practice by an insurance company or something like that. I, I, I can't answer that because I, I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was meant to be, that. it was meant to be a lot rhetorical, but <laughs> also, also, frankly, just to test because this is really odd. I mean, this is really, really odd. And I know what your provision says about no change unless made in writing. You've had pretty good luck with courts with that, uh, you being the insurance uh, company. <clears throat> but goodness gracious, you know. I, I certainly understand that it's a, a unique factual scenario. And I think this is where, um, if you've had a viable 502A3 claim, 
you know, this is maybe a circumstance with, with slightly different facts where you could have a viable 502A3 claim. However, there isn't one in this complaint. Um, and if, if we're focusing on the notice issue, again, if you read what 502A3 says, and I think a lot of times all that's said is appropriate equitable relief, there's more to 502A3. It has to be appropriate equitable relief to address violations of ERISA or the plan or to enforce provisions of ERISA or the plan. So there's got to be a fiduciary obligation that is either under the plan or ERISA to provide notice of conversion rights. The plan does not require notice, and cases cited by Mr. Morrow, like Hoth, H-A-U-T-H, they had provisions in there where it was guaranteed that you would get notice. This conversion right makes no reference to notice. So the plan doesn't require notice, and as the district court correctly found, ERISA doesn't require notice. Only in the context of health care benefits is a COBRA notice required. So a 502A3 claim can't survive on saying, well, they were going to voluntarily provide notice as a courtesy. It's not required in the plan. It's not required under ERISA. It cannot form the basis of a 502A3 claim for that reason. In addition, as pleaded, the 502A3 claim is pleaded entirely as a repackaging of count one, which is a 50A1B claim. It's clear. It says it seeks an order directing defendants to comply with the terms of the conversion provision under the plan and its letter of February 24, 2021, and to pay the life insurance benefits rightfully due under the plan to plaintiff. That's a 502A1B claim. That's exactly what they said in count one. More importantly, this court has obviously recognized, as has the Supreme Court, that if you're going to have a 502A3 claim, you need a typically classic equitable type of relief that you're seeking in an equitable theory. And that doesn't exist in this complaint. Plaintiff has, below at the hearing, they said, well, it's really an equitable estoppel claim that we're pleading. There's no reference to estoppel in the complaint, and there's no reference. I think Mr. Morrow conceded this. He said, we say a breach of fiduciary duty. Well, that's not sufficient pleading because you also need to plead the elements of both equitable estoppel and breach of fiduciary duty, which this court has recognized both of those have detrimental reliance and reasonableness associated with them. Ms. Colley, Mr. Morrow and his argument seem to suggest that the case should go forward so that he could do some discovery about communications between Deere and your clients about, I think, having to do with who was taking responsibility to give notice. Would that make a difference? No, Your Honor, it wouldn't because of what I just sort of was explaining, perhaps not artfully, but that for a 502A3 claim, you have to be obligated to do something under the plan, which is the policy as written, or ERISA. And as the district court correctly concluded, the policy doesn't require notice. Does it require notice of Deere or by Deere? Does it require notice by Deere? I don't believe that Deere has any fiduciary obligation to provide notice because under ERISA, it's only if it involves a health group plan. I don't know what the plan sponsors. Does the policy impose a duty on Deere to give notice of conversion rights? Oh, I'm sorry. No, Your Honor. Okay. 
Um, going back, sorry, to the 502A3 claim again, uh, it, it's not pleaded um, sufficiently to, to, even though, I mean, it, it certainly doesn't set forth any classic type of uh, equitable claim, uh, but even if we, we are going to accept the premise that it's trying to plead an equitable estoppel claim, the elements are simply not there. Um, there's no detrimental reliance, there's no reference to materiality, reasonableness, and, and quite frankly, under these facts, I don't know how you could, um, as pleaded, you could actually uh, conjure uh, any kind of reliance. Um, this, the, the plan is very clear about what you need to do to accomplish to get your conversion rights. There are no allegations that my clients did anything in that five-month period that misled plaintiff about what was required under the policy, misrepresented anything about what was required under the policy, or made really any communications about what was required under the policy. The allegation is that Deere told plaintiff that, um, yeah, there's going to be a conversion notice. My client can't be responsible for whether that was a misrepresentation by Deere or not. It's, it's not something my client would be responsible for. And there are no other facts that would identify something my clients did during that five-month period that led Mr. Powell to not follow the, the clear plan and, and convert his rights. Um, I think the district court was correct that what has happened in this case was that this letter went out on February 24, 2021, and plaintiff understandably tried to take advantage of it by sending in a beneficiary statement, but there's no reliance there. Um, it, it, it just, the, as pleaded, they're just, the facts don't support that. Um, I'm happy to answer any other questions the court has. Hearing Thank none. you for your time. Thank you. side, which was new to me, uh, I don't think it was briefed, that ERISA says the, the life insurance uh, policy is the plan. If that's all there is, but, but the policy, if that's just the plan, then it doesn't No, include. no, I'm talking about the legal point. Do you know anything about the legal point? I, I suppose it could be, but, but if it, it would at least need to include who the fiduciary is responsible for controlling and managing the operation administration, which the plan is completely silent on. We don't know. Is, is Minnesota Life just a claims administrator or is it a plan administrator under this plan? We don't know because that policy doesn't say either way. Um, <clears throat> in addition to that, the risk law is clear that an employee is entitled to the summary plan description, which the record is completely void whether Mr. Powell received that or not. And traditionally, that would be where the conversion rights would be explained a little further. Um, to say that this plan directs Mr. Powell how to convert his policy is a bit, I think it's overstating. It just says you have to submit an application. What's the application? How do I get it? What's my premium going to be? Uh, none of that information was provided to Mr. Powell. And we do believe that Deere... Well, the, the, it does infer, I'm sorry to break into your rebuttal, but it does infer what the premium is. Now proceed. 
if you read the plan, it says based on your age, based on this, based on that. Typical insurance talk. Go ahead. Sure. It, it infers it's probably going to go up. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'll say that. Yeah, right? go ahead. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't tell them really anything on how to, how to convert. And clearly something happened. Minnesota Life, uh, clearly something happened where John Deere told Mr. Powell that you're going to get this notice. That's, that's part of our complaint. Minnesota Life, we, we pled that Deere delegated that to, to its claims administrator. Maybe it's, maybe it's plan administrator. We don't know what Minnesota Life's role was, and they didn't do it. And so I would just end with, with we're not just talking about a conversion window. And, and, and counsel said, Ms. Powell's trying to take advantage of it. Minnesota Life sent a letter soliciting back premium payments. <laughs> they're trying to sell insurance. They want Mr. Powell to be alive. They want him to send that check in, and they're gonna continue to insure him because they think he's probably insurable because he's, he's, he's gone on this far. So I would just end with, Ms. Powell's not trying to take advantage of anything other than Minnesota Life's own interpretation of its policy. We respectfully request that the uh, district court's dismissal of counts one and two uh, be reversed. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, counsel. <clears throat> thank you for, thank you both for your appearance today and your arguments and briefing. Cases submitted and we'll issue an opinion in due course.